0: We will be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 to 9. It's been my observation uh, as I've studied the book of Philippians over the past two years that uh, Paul is writing um, really to the church in exile, uh, to pilgrims in the wilderness, to those who are suffering uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune, living life uh, amidst a pagan empire. And he writes to comfort them, to encourage them, and to give them a manual uh, for how to deal with life as pilgrims. And so we want to consider this this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the peace and the god of peace will be with you let's pray lord our god may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight o oh lord our rock and our redeemer would you bless your word this morning would it fill our hearts with peace comfort us in affliction and encourage faint hearts though they be weak, all by the power of your Spirit, because of Christ Jesus, your Son, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Uh, One of the most important and existentially riveting questions that anyone has ever asked or thought about extensively is a question that I think most of you are probably familiar with. It's a very simple question. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? That was a question that some deeply philosophical nuns consulted together to solve. Uh, it could be said that Maria's character and The Sound of Music caused the nuns quite a bit of trouble or anxiety. Uh, they could not control this whimsically joyful woman, Maria, and so they rightly question, how do you solve a problem like Maria? They even ask, how do you catch a moonbeam in your hand. Ironically, I think this rather short and insignificant dilemma depicted by the nuns in The Sound of Music is illustrative of a much bigger and deeper problem with humanity. It is as impossible to catch the beams of light coming off the moon in your hands as it is to control another human being, let alone any part of our lives from day to day. The lack of control, our finitude, whether we like it or not, is not only the source of much of the discord that we experience amidst our communities, as we see with the nuns and Maria, but it's also a source of great anxiety in our everyday lives. The lack of control we have to get what we want in every area of our life is the source of much of our anxiety and trouble. And yet, in our passage today, Paul teaches us something quite different than the endless pursuit of control over our lives or over others. He issues forth a manual, an instruction booklet to show the pilgrim church, a way for peace to characterize not only their communal lives, but their individual lives, so that we might endure and stand fast in the present. And we'll look at that today in three ways. First, communities of peace, looking through verses 1 to 5. Second, hearts of peace in verses 6 to 7. And then the model of peace in verses 8 to 9. So communities of peace, hearts of peace, and the model of peace. So, I mentioned already that the book of Philippians is really Paul's letter for pilgrims suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune while they're in the wilderness. Paul, I I believe, is not so much laboring in this letter to correct any major doctrinal issues and set them straight. Uh, Rather, he's writing to encourage Christians uh, that are suffering at the hands of a Roman Empire uh, and enduring life in a sin-cursed world. And I think evidence of this fact is not just the overall contents of this letter taken as a whole, but the way that Paul addresses this church. Here he calls them his brothers, his joy, his crown, those whom he longs for and he loves, those who labor side by side with him, together for the gospel, and those whose names are already written in the book of life. He also calls out to Iodia and Syntyche. He calls them out by name, an act which in the Greco-Roman Empire symbolized or, or conveyed one's affection rather than disdain. You can contrast that with the opening of chapter 3, where Paul refers to Gentile uh, uh, dogs and those who mutilate the flesh. He gives no name and no title to these people. So it's inherently shameful for those to whom he's referencing. And so in this, we see throughout his letter, his aim is to help believers persevere through life in a sin-cursed world where we stand amidst a sea of troubles where we endure enemies from without, as the Philippian church was from the Roman Empire, and enemies from within, be it our own sinful inclinations or the discord that we sow amidst our own communities, as was one of the major problems that Paul is addressing in this letter. He wants to equip those whom he really and truly deeply loves and longs for with what they need to stand fast and to stand firm as pilgrims who are making their way to their eternal home. And Paul had in fact already spoken to them of this at the end of chapter 1, this standing firm. He told them that they were to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together side by side for the faith for the for the sake of the gospel and that it had been granted to them as a grace for the sake of Christ to suffer. And now he reminds those like Iodia and Syntyche, and those like Clement, who labor side by side with him, who are his joy, his crown, those whom he loves and that he longs for, his brothers, to continue to stand firm in the Lord. And Paul roots this exhortation to stand firm in the Lord in what he had just declared to them at the end of chapter 3. They are to stand firm in the Lord because their citizenship was in heaven from which they await the Lord Jesus Christ who would transform their lowly bodies to be like his own glorious risen body by the power that even now enabled him to subject all things beneath his feet. But this exhortation to stand firm is met with a serious problem because there was tension amidst this body of believers. You can't artificially fake unity with those over whom you have disagreement. You can't force two magnets that don't belong together to agree and to attract. You cannot force two bickering children to simply drop their argument over whose toy they're playing with is and whose time it is to play with it. You have to make them see eye to eye. And yet, whatever was dividing the Philippian church, whatever was causing this division, though it may not have been a serious doctrinal error, it was enough to undermine their ability to persevere in the present. It's a peripheral matter, preferential and yet not essential to their life and their unity, their agreement in the Lord. And so Paul's solution to agree in the Lord is appropriate to them. And yet, agreeing in the Lord is not some abstract command to set aside difference and just be. Agreement in the Lord isn't just accomplished by inactive passivity. Rather, it's fueled by an intentional action, exercising the humility that we have already begun to experience as a result of the fact that we're unified to Christ Jesus, as he reminded them in chapter 2. They're united to the humility of Christ that led him to forsake his place in pre-incarnate glory with God and to take on human flesh and to suffer life in a sin-cursed world. And so to agree in the Lord is is a call from Paul for us to think on and meditate upon the things of God and to think on and meditate upon what has been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus, to dwell beneath the clouds of Christ's glory. But it's also to live as the unified body that he has created. So Paul exhorts each of them, true companions, clement and all those who labor with him side by side, including Iodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, to think upon the Lord. Now, thinking in the Lord, dwelling underneath the cloud of his salvation, naturally leads those who are thinking in the Lord to rejoice. When we meditate upon what Christ has done for us, it immediately draws our hearts to a place of joy, to a place of gratitude, wellness, and happiness. And so Paul commends them, not just once, but twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, to rejoice means to be in a state of happiness or to be in a state of well-being. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus is enough for us to be well, to be glad such that it overflows into our relationships with one another. No longer are our individual preferences such important issues that fracture our relationships. Discussions over which way the chairs should face at church, what flowers should adorn the pulpit, if any at all, what color the pews are, or what time church might be, do not keep us from standing together as pilgrims, journeying to that sacred home. Instead, our corporate goal, our corporate experience as the body of believers, is to savor and taste every note in the flavors of what Christ has accomplished for us, to taste every flavor of the salvation that we have achieved in Christ. So rejoicing in the Lord really puts things in perspective and shows us what really matters. And it does this because it directs our attention away from these preferential and peripheral matters And it instead focuses our gaze upon what God has done for us in Christ. It's not just a mere thinking on, but a gladness that arises out of our recollection on God's grace in Christ Jesus. And so we look at his gracious provision for us this day and on the day of salvation, when the curtain was torn and the heavens rendered accessible to us. And we garnered access to communion with God. When the spirit of the living Christ was sent out to create life in our hearts, that is what we're thinking on and is what is creating in us not a sense of dissatisfaction or envy or hatred for one another, but joy and happiness and contentment in Christ. It might lead us even to a place where we ask ourselves, do these things really matter in comparison to what God has done for us in Christ? These things that we're quarreling over. And so we get this little, what I want to call, no-duh moment from Paul. Like, yeah, when your sole focus is on savoring and delighting in every flavor of God's work for you, the transience, the insignificance of these unimportant things really become apparent to you, don't they? You develop a kind of reasonableness, a word in Greek which denotes a willingness not to insist on every Right or letter of the law or custom. And much more than this, in the case that you get tired, you citizens who are standing firm while you wait for the Lord to return on the clouds beneath which you dwell, as you wait for him to transform your lowly bodies to be like his own by the power that enables him to subject all things even now beneath his feet. Guess what, weary pilgrim? When these preferential matters and agreeing with one another and thinking in the Lord and rejoicing and savoring his loving kindness to us gets difficult in the way rough. Paul reminds us, the Lord is at hand. So it's not only that you don't need to do this forever, it's not only that unity as a, uh, unity as a body is something that we have to strive after forever, but in the grand scheme of things, in comparison to the nearness both spiritually, that we have with our risen Lord, that is, his presence with us by his spirit, and temporally, that is, soon he is to return, none of these things matter at all. We can be reasonable, we can rejoice, we can thus be unified and stand firm as a body of believers because we have the right perspective. There's a transience to this age. And our corporate goal is to savor every flavor of what God has done for us. So, peace, peace, here is peace in the Lord amidst the body as they savor and worship Christ. And this is a unity, a standing, uh, a unity that is absolutely essential if we are to stand firm against a world like the Roman Empire who is persecuting this Philippian church and leading them through great affliction. Unfortunately, this text does not just give them and give us more tools for unity and peace in our community. It's also about the general anxiety that pervades life in a sin-cursed world. Paul wants to give us not just communities of peace, but also hearts of peace. Paul understands the nature of the human heart, especially in the wilderness, and that's clear by the, fact that he, uh, by the fact that he addresses them regarding anxiety in general. Now, I think this term anxiety is a tough te- term to pin down these days, but I, I believe generally we, we want to have a, a good definition of that. And broadly speaking, we can define it as panic arising out of our thought life because we don't get what we want or because of our present circumstances. So why does anxiety or panic arise out of our hearts? There's really two kinds of anxieties. One is sinful and one is upright. The upright kind of anxiety feels this turmoil and panic as a result of the brokenness of the fall. Because suffering happens, because we live in a sin-cursed world, because tragedy strikes, or because we have to battle against sin, we endure pain, we have anxiety in our hearts. But the second kind of anxiety is a sinful anxiety that arises in our hearts for two intimately connected reasons. The first is that, as John Calvin so aptly noted, our hearts are idle factories. And the second is a tale as as old as nearly time itself. Man wants control. We want to direct our own way. We want to determine what is good and pleasing to our eyes. So here's how it works. When your heart makes an idol out of something, you long desperately for that that thing such that when you don't get that thing, that idol, you experience anxiety over it. We wanted something different than what God planned for our lives. That thing was an idol in our heart. And the acquisition of such an item would have brought us peace and wholeness and made our hearts feel full. Having that idol, having that thing, whatever it may have been, was more important to us than having God himself. And secondarily, and connected to this idol, our hearts, since the fall, are prone to want control. Adam and Eve wanted to be in control of their own fate, to be like God, to determine what was good for food and right to the eyes. We want control. We want the power to dictate our days, to order them, and to determine the destiny of our lives. When we don't get to plan it, when our plans go awry, when our hopes and dreams, our idols are dashed, often our response is to be filled with a kind of panic a dissatisfaction, or an anxiety. So what is the fix? And how is it a fix? Well, Paul says the solution is in everything, uh, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to make your requests known to God. And to this method, to this plan, he attaches a promise that that peace, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, you wonder immediately, how does that work? How does prayer in this way provide the solution of God's all-encompassing and incomprehensible peace? Well, it is the product of, of what prayer is and what prayer calls us to do. The posture of prayer, people of God, is inherently submissive. When you go to the Lord of glory on your hands and on your knees and you petition him to give and give thanks to him, you are inherently re- recognizing that you are not in control of your life. You are inherently undermining the second natural I- intuition of the human heart to vie for control. Prayer to God plainly surrenders our own feigned sovereignty of our lives. It takes us from a place where we are dead set on what we want and from pursuing our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, to surrender them to the throne of grace. There, in prayer, we rightly recognize that God is sovereign and that everything that comes to pass is beneath His power and under His might and control, and a product of His paternal and fatherly love. And yet, we also need to note here that it's not just coming to God in prayer, this vague prayer, and bringing to Him our petitions, but bringing to Him our requests in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is important to this dynamic of prayer. It turns us from a place of demand and absolute expectation of what we're bringing to God to recognize instead the many ways that the Lord of creation has already provided for us and sustained us in all things. Instead of being focused on what you want and what God has not given to you or the ways that he's maybe fallen short of providing you what you believe he owes you, You thankfully bring your requests to him in gratitude for what he has already done and for the way that he continues to sustain you. So the promise, the product of prayer in this way, is the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts. In other words, those anxieties will lose their grip on you. No longer will they dominate your thought life but you have surrendered them to him from whom and to whom all things belong. You know, as my father reminded us as children, you bring your concerns, your troubles, and your anxieties to the father like water off a duck's back. A duck's feathers have this material that coats them that causes water to not soak into them. It rolls right off. And so, too, we cast our burdens, our anxieties, our sorrows upon the Lord. Not just the sinful anxieties, but the upright ones. Those, too, we bring to the Lord, and we are met with this promise, that his peace will indeed guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this peace of God is a massive thing. As Jesus was going away to leave his disciples in John chapter 14, he says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then comes Jesus' benedictory promise to his people as he prepares to depart from them. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Beloved people of God, the peace of God in Christ Jesus is crossing over from the eternal kingdom where the God of peace dwells in inapproachable light into this age by the spirit of the God of peace into your hearts. Because the spirit of the God of peace actually dwells in your hearts. And that's an incredible, incredible, incredible reality. We're exiles living in a land of ways exposed to all sorts of troubles, and yet the goodness and the serenity of the kingdom of God is present even now in this age of sin and death. The very solace and serenity that characterizes God's very being is what Christians, characterized by gratitude, are invited into and promised possession of. And yet again, You might ask, where is this peace? What about the fact that sometimes even when we come to the Lord our God with prayer in this way, we don't find we experience this peace? We're still met by anxieties that plague our hearts. I believe that's part of the difficulty of this text, isn't it? That sometimes we may think that we're praying in this way, and yet we don't come to find that peace. Our experience of life is not met by this promise, or so it would seem. And so I found the words of John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, particularly helpful on this dilemma. He says, It is easy to attain a a familiarity and an ability in the language of prayer, putting your meaning into apt and appropriate expressions, but to get your heart broken for sin while you are confessing it, to be melted with free grace while you are blessing God for it, to be really humbled and ashamed when contemplating God's infinite holiness, and to keep your heart in this frame will surely cost you some groans and painful, painful exertions in your soul. So to apply that to our situ- situation, really and truly surrendering to the God of peace, our anxieties, the gods of our lives and the things that we crave and the plans that we have made, And to bring to him our needs and burdens, having realized that we cannot catch the moonbeam in our hand, is no simple task. It teaches us of the great duty that we should be committed to in our prayers. And yet when we realize that our hearts are only ever at peace because of the objective peace of Christ... we come to experience experience and realize there is the subjective experience of Christ. Here's what I mean by that. There are two kinds of peace. The first is the objective peace of Christ, the peace that we have with God as the result of the work of Christ Jesus for us on the cross, the peace which reconciled us to God while we were yet sinners. It is there, it is certain, it is sure, it is unequivocal, it is never in question, it is never in doubt. But the second is the subjective peace of God. The peace that we come to experience as a result of the fact that we are reconciled to God. The peace that comes to dominate our experience of life. The Hebrews defined this peace as a wholeness and a well-being, and was, it was an essential characteristic of the messianic kingdom. So it's not a sign that we might hold up, kids. It's harmony, it's not harmony between two warring countries. In this sense, it is the restoration to communion with God that was lost in Adam. So when our hearts are fixated on the God of peace, who has brought us into peace with himself, suddenly the troubles of our heart melt away. That's accomplished in two ways. First, man's biggest problem. Man's biggest dilemma, man's biggest plight is that he he was at enmity with God. Second, as a result of this enmity, he is robbed of his wholeness because he is no longer in communion with God. And so something essential to who we are is missing. All other problems are meaningless in comparison to these two problems. If you were to solve every other trouble of your heart, a misbehaving child, financial struggles, financial instability, marital disunion, none of them would compare to the lack of communion that we have with God and the enmity that we were, with, we were at with him. They mean nothing. The solution of those problems mean nothing if you don't have peace with God and communion with him. And yet now... You can approach the triune God of all of creation in peace and make your requests known to him. You can bring before him your burdens, and he hears them as a loving father. The God-sized chasm in your life has been filled and is now whole. And you can do this with his spirit who not only guards you in the peace of God so that you do not stumble to the left or to the right, but you can do this with a spirit who, mentioned earlier, as Romans 8 testifies, issues forth the prayers of your heart, the anxieties and the concerns that you don't know how to pray. And so just as a Roman garrison guarded over the city at Philippi, so too now the God of peace guards his people by his spirit, in love, not justice, and in communion with himself, not estrangement. Now these, these burdens that we bear, these anxieties that we experience are real. And the challenge to have this peace, to have this communion or to not be anxious about the wrong things and to be anxious about the right things and submit them to God is a real challenge. Paul, I believe, is aware of this, and so he sets before them, the people of God, the model of his own life to encourage them in peace. He gives them his own model of peace. Now, Paul was anxious for the churches in 1 Corinthians, demonstrating the fact that there is a right kind of anxiety, When Paul goes and writes to the the, the church in 1 Corinthians, he tells them of all of the things that he's experienced, the sufferings that he's endured, the horrendous things that we couldn't even begin to imagine the experience of. And the greatest of these, he lists, is his anxiety for the church. We see that Paul is anxious for the Philippian church in this letter. He tells them that he was anxious for Epaphroditus, his brother and companion who upon his trip from Philippi to Rome was so sick that he nearly died. The Philippians themselves are anxious for Epaphroditus and for his well-being, having heard that he was ill. Jesus himself wept, he lamented, he sweat blood. Certainly, to sweat blood is a certain kind of anxiety that is not necessarily sinful erroneous, idolatrous, or rebellious against the sovereignty of God. So there are anxieties that are appropriate to your people of God. When you lose your spouse of 40, 50, 60, 70 years, when you outlive your child, when your child turns away from God, when your spouse commits adultery, when you lose your home, when financial instability strikes, when you lose your job, the list goes on. These are horrible things that are a result of life in a sin-cursed world. And we rightly experience sorrow over them. And yet in the midst of them, we can find a peace that transcends the reason of this world by Paul's own model. So he lays before them what their thought life should be like. Verse 8. And the interesting thing about verse 8 and the list that he gives is that it reads like one of the ancient Greek philosophers' code of ethics and virtues. These are ethics and virtues which they taught would lead to peaceful lives of wisdom within themselves and would produce a really utopian community, a utopian city. But the problem with these Greek virtue lists is that they were bent by sin according to the wisdom of these philosophers. They could not produce real peace with God or within their communities, and as such, they could not fill the chasms in our heart created by estrangement and enmity with the living God. The peace of God in the midst of tragedy, through their virtues, made no sense. And so when the anxiety we experience in the face of horrible things like the death of a child is true, when it's honorable, when it's pure and just and worthy of praise and excellent, and we think on these things in Christ, then no longer are our concerns out of line with the thought life of God himself. Then we are aligning our deepest desires and thoughts after God's. And the result is that we can with paul who has shown them his model while he was with them and throughout this letter from his own life be dominated not only by tranquility but by the conclusion that god will bring to completion what he has begun in them as he proclaimed to them in the opening of his letter he can from light from from a prison in rome near the executioner's house write a letter to the Philippian church that is simply dominated by joy and by thanksgiving. He can write a letter where he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He can be more concerned with others' well-being such that he would send them back, his helpers, both Timothy and Epaphroditus, while he's in prison and express his willingness in chapter 2 to pour out his life further for them on the altar of their faith that he would be willing to give everything of himself to serve those who were in need. Paul really shows here in this virtue list that when you think the right things, when you have a right orthodoxy about life, your orthopraxy or the way that you live and experience life is altered by it. We can acknowledge that there are horrible things that we do rightly experience turmoil over, and yet in the midst of those sorrows, we can be overcome by both the joy and the peace of God because the God of peace guards us in his peace and is with us intimately to comfort us in affliction. And so we see that there are things that we ought not to be sorrowful and anxious over, and yet humbly submit and relinquish Our feigned sovereignty over, and there are also things that we rightly lament. I really do believe that this is not a heartless, careless instruction or promise that Paul issues that invalidates the truly painful things that we experience in this life that do cause anxiety to our hearts. He was one, Paul, who really suffered extreme tragedy, and yet he assures us that while we are in the wilderness, while we are pilgrims suffering, Peace, peace in Christ, there is peace that surpasses all human understanding. It not only guards us, but it keeps us. And I was reminded as I studied this text of Habakkuk, a prophet who brought before the Lord his lament. He wondered why God would use dastardly Babylon more wicked than Judah why God would select them to punish Jerusalem, and why God would afflict his people as such. There was no idolatry or longing for self-deity in his, in his sorrow or in his lament to the Lord as he brought his prayer to God. And God's response to him was this, you don't know the thing that I am doing, and then he would go on to tell Habakkuk of his promises and the victory that he would win for his people as he would restore them to himself suddenly while in exile before redemption had ever been accomplished by christ habakkuk the prophet could say amidst all other worldly troubles at the prospect of god's promised peace and victory won in the power of christ he could exclaim this though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines the product of the olive fail the fields yield no food The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet as the deer's, He makes me tread on high places. The beautiful thing, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that Habakkuk said that while he was in exile, hoping in what was to come. Christ had not yet come to inaugurate his kingdom and accomplish redemption. Now we too may be pilgrims in exile like Habakkuk in the wilderness, but the work is complete. The work that purchased peace with God is accomplished. Now the God of peace promises his peace and is with us by his spirit. Now the Lord is nigh to return and usher his people home, and transform all things, including these weak and lowly bodies, to be like his own glorious body by the power that enables him even now to subject all things beneath his feet. So let us rejoice in the Lord, the God of our salvation, not only when we cannot catch the moonbeam, but even when there is no fruit on the trees and no flowers in the field. Let us stand firm in an age where we are pilgrims in the wilderness, in the day of small things, trusting the Lord to sustain us as we wait. Let's pray. Lord, our God and King, though we be tossed to and fro as with the turbulent seas, though our hearts be assailed by anxieties of every kind, we come to you now confessing that you are our great and awesome God, who has accomplished much more than we could ever ask or more than we could ever imagine. While others may devise crafty schemes in search of peace, we know that it is insufficient to dress the wound of your people. Peace is found in you alone, and for that we rejoice and give thanks that though we be pilgrims outside the promised land, now peace is ours by your Spirit and by your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen.